uh, before we get started this morning. Please pray. Father, we're grateful that you love us with a great, amazing, sovereign love, that your love is covenantal and loyal and faithful and committed. We love you, Lord, because you have first loved us. We thank you for Christ Jesus, our one and only Savior, the one who lived and died for us. We ask you now to fill us with your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would give us illumination of the mind and heart, that we would hear your word, we would hear it correctly, and that we would submit to your word. So help us in that regard. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you be the glory forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. So I've been assigned to session number six, and who governs the local church? It's coming up right now. Who governs the local church? And I'm so grateful to the Lord that this session is not after lunch, because after lunch is known as siesta time. And so this is a very important topic. It's a good topic. Um, And most Christians are not aware of how the church operates and works and makes decisions. And so in regards to session number six, before I jump into this, it would be helpful to all of us if we define certain words, define certain words. And so in our question of who governs the local church, we need to define the word church or the original word ecclesia, and that is the called out ones. Those are a regenerate group, those who are born again. Those are a people unto God's name who are spirit-filled believers. They are committed to the word of God and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that should give us a good idea, a working definition of the word church. The word local means the immediate area, the locale. This is where a group of Christians physically come together and meet. So for example, we all live and work for most of us in the Las Vegas area. And so this local body, First Baptist Church of the Lakes, is in the local area or immediate area of Las Vegas. And so this is where we physically meet to worship the Lord. And then the word govern. The word govern simply means to regulate or to set forth and administer. So the question that's before us is simply a question of who regulates this local body of regenerate believers. And so we may think that this question is not important or possibly insignificant or irrelevant. If that's you, I want to challenge you to think biblically today about this question and this topic. So the answer to the question of who regulates the local body or this local body of regenerate believers, there are three answers that I want to provide. Three answers. And I'll talk about the first two briefly, and then I want to spend most of the time that I have this morning on the third answer. So the first answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ governs this local body. Question or answer number two is the authority of divinely given elders to lead, govern 
this local body, the authority of divinely given elders who lead. And then the third answer is the local church, the local church. So I want to briefly talk about number one and two and then spend most of our time on number three. So number one, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the head of the church. It is not the pope. It is not the pastor. It is not the senior pastor. It is not the pastoral team. It is not the denomination. It is not the SBC. It's not the North American Mission Board. It is not the IMB, the International Mission Board. It is the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. So let me talk about one text that comes to mind here, Colossians 1, 18, that Jesus is the head of the church. Colossians 1, 18 says this, And he, referring to Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul is giving thanks to God the Father, for delivering the Colossians from the domain of darkness and transferring them to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of their sins. Then Paul breaks out into something very beautiful, this doxology, in the next several verses. And in this doxology or hymn, the Apostle Paul talks about the greatness of Jesus Christ the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ in two areas. In creation, that creation was made by Christ, for Christ, and through Christ. And the second point of this doxology is the supremacy of Christ in redemption. How God has saved his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then verse 18, which I quoted earlier, that he is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. If you want some cross-references, you may want to write this down just for the sake of time. But I want to encourage you to read and study Ephesians 1, 21 to 23. Ephesians 1, 21 through 23. And then the implications of that is in Ephesians 4, 15. In Ephesians 5.23. Ephesians 4.15 and Ephesians 5.23. Just for the sake of time, I'm just trying to condense these first two points. But also, Jesus claims authority over the church. Actually, over everything. In heaven and in earth. Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority, where? in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has all authority now. Not in the future, but now. Over what jurisdiction? Over the entire universe to include the church. So Jesus is the head of the church with all authority. That's point number one, or answer number one to this question of who governs the local church. The second answer is the Lord provides biblically qualified pastors, elders, I'm using those two terms interchangeably 
and synonymously to lead his church. The Lord provides biblically qualified pastors to lead his church. So, for example, in Ephesians 4, verse 11, what does the Lord provide for his New Testament church? In verse 11, it says, And he, the Lord, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, as a New Testament church, we don't believe that Apostles, capital A, exist anymore. That was in the first century. But the Lord provides certain people for his church. And I want to stress and emphasis the shepherds and teachers. Who are those? Pastors and elders. That's who they are. In this context, these are biblically qualified men. That's obvious, Pastor Rolo. But we live in a context today. We live in a culture in America today. And I see this so much in the military that women can be pastors. And I know that it's unpopular to say that men and only men are pastors. That's what the Word of God says. We need to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications of a pastor. I'm not going to go into that. That's not the point. That's not the point of my text. But the reason that there are pastors who are men in the church is Paul roots his argument in the previous chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And it's not about culture. It's not about popular opinion. But he roots it all the way back to Genesis, in Genesis, in the creation account. So I'm stating the obvious that biblically qualified pastors are men. But in this context, the Apostle Paul encourages unity in the body of Christ. Unity in the body of Christ. To walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The calling to which you have been called. And the Lord Jesus gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, pastors, Elders, why? We just got to keep on reading. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of what? Ministry, for the building up of the body. If you want more details, read verse 12 all the way to 16. It'll give you a more comprehensive answer. But the basic answer is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. How do, you, how do pastors, elders do that? They do that by being faithful to the word of God and preaching and teaching the word of God to help the sheep of God grow and mature in Christ. So what happens when there are no biblically qualified pastors in a local church? This is what I would say. That local church is extremely handicapped at that point. They're at a strong disadvantage. And that church needs to pray for God to provide biblically qualified pastors and elders. God is the one who provides that, by the way. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, it's good to have biblically qualified pastors in the church. Because in Acts 14, 23, It says this, and when they have appointed elders for them in every 
church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They appointed elders in every church. They appointed pastors in every church. For a church to function properly, they need to have biblically qualified men to lead. And so that doesn't mean anybody can lead the church. God has a certain parameter, definition, and qualification for a pastor to lead or pastoral team to lead the church. So that's number two. So we've talked about Jesus as the head of the church, and we've talked about biblically qualified pastor elders. Now, the answer to answer number three to this question of who governs the local church, I want to argue and spend most of the time is the local church. I want to talk about the importance of the local church and your role in the local church. When we think about this year's Reformation Conference of being Baptist and Reformed, and we address it in the area of polity. Polity may be a fancy word to most, but polity is just simply a word of what is the government of the church. So when we take this year's theme and apply it to the governmental structure of a local Baptist church, we're saying something very intentional, very clear, very organized, as opposed to other denominations who have, they have organization as well, but the way that they're structured is a little bit different, which I'll go into here in a few minutes. But we're really talking about the governmental structure, the organization, a.k.a. polity. So if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but how does this church or a Baptist church make major decisions of utmost importance. So, for example, how do we make a decision to receive new church members? Should these new church members be born again and biblically baptized? How, who receives the Lord's Supper? How do we dismiss church members who are in good standing, who have moved on to another city or another state or to another country? How do we dismiss those church members? How do we discipline church members who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and still embrace and hold on to their sin? How do we excommunicate from the membership those who make a profession of faith and are unwilling to repent? They say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, yet they hold on to their sins with a passion. On and on. These are major questions. We're talking about making decisions of utmost importance in the local church. Who makes these decisions in the local church? Better yet, who has the authority to make these decisions in the local church? In the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 26, entitled The Church, paragraph 7 states this. To every church gathered in this way, conforming to Christ's mind as declared in his word, he has given all power and authority that is in any way necessary to conduct the form of worship and discipline that he has instituted for them to observe. 
He has also given them commands and rules to use and carry out that power rightly and properly. So the way that the confession is stated, that language, it's clear that the local church possesses power and authority to make decisions of utmost importance. It is again not the denomination. It is again not a hierarchy above the church. It's not the pope. It's not a deacon board, which is very popular in Southern Baptist churches. There's only two offices in the New Testament, pastor, elder, and deacon. The definition of a deacon board is you've got a group of deacons that may or may not qualify as deacons, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, but they have the title of deacon. They don't necessarily qualify also as a pastor, elder, and so they're in this third office, which does not exist in the New Testament, called the deacon board, and they make decisions on a variety of areas. Yet they don't qualify for the other two offices. And this third office is made up. It's very popular in Southern Baptist churches, by the way. Either they qualify or they don't qualify. That's the real question. So the local church has this power and authority. And from this confession of the 1689, it summarizes the Bible in a very succinct way in two important areas that I want to note now in this point number three. There's two observations here that I want us to take note of. Number one, autonomy, which is independence of the local church and final decisions. The autonomy, which is independence of the local church and the final decisions of the local church. So first, let's talk about autonomy. And there's two texts that I want us to cover this morning. And as we go through this text together, I want us to answer this question. What is the problem that's before us? And how do we resolve that problem that's before us? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. This will be our first text this morning. And most of us are very familiar with this because we've talked about it, we've preached on it, we've taught on it. But if there is sin within the body of Christ, the Lord gives us instructions on how to deal with that sin. And there's a step-by-step process. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. 
So in Matthew chapter 18, the Lord Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he gives them instruction. If there's sin within the body of Christ, this is how you are to operate. And the goal, I want to make this very clear, when it comes to church discipline, the goal is always restoration. The goal is always reconciliation. The goal is always to win the offender, the violator, back to who? Jesus Christ. In a submission to Jesus. So the Lord Jesus is talking to the leaders of the New Testament church. And he says this. If there's sin, okay, we're not talking about personal opinion. We're not talking about having your feelings hurt. We're not talking about they don't like the Chicago Bears or the Dallas Cowboys. We are talking about sin. So when people ask me, Pastor Rolo, I need advice in this situation. My first question is, is there sin? How do you define sin? Is sin a transgression and a violation of God's law? Yes. So if we're talking about that, then let's follow this. But if we're talking about sports, we don't follow this. So I ask them, is it sin? So Jesus says to his disciples, if your brother or sister has sinned against you, I say sister, that's the implication. If they've sinned against you, then you, one-on-one, come together. Make this very intentional, very defined, very small. And the goal is not to just argue for the sake of argument. It's to win them to Christ, right? So, this first step happens, but there's no reconciliation. Then Jesus says, you go to step two. He says, then, you're to bring one or two other witnesses with you. Why? To establish the facts of the story. And if there's no resolution at that step, then you take it to the third step. The third step is you tell it to who? The denomination? No. You tell it to who? The church. The church. We're talking about the group that is born again, spirit-filled, committed to Jesus. Tell it to the church. And if this person who's a violator at that point still refuses to repent, then what? You excommunicate. You're to treat them like a Gentile and tax collector. What does that mean? You are to cut them off from the fellowship of the local body. You are to suspend all Christian full association with this person. We treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. That sounds rough and mean and unloving. We've practiced that several times in this church. Yes, it's not fun, but it's the loving thing. It's the most loving thing we can do when somebody's in sin. So they are excommunicated at that point. Question, who is the ultimate authority for this decision? The key word is ultimate. The ultimate authority is Jesus Christ and his word. But here's a different question. Who is the final authority in this decision to excommunicate? The local church. The local church is the final authority. It's not pastors. It's not the pastoral team. It's not the deacons. It's definitely not the deacon board. It's not the denomination. The local church is independent 
of any hierarchy. And so we need to understand that. The local church is independent. The second text that I want to bring to our consideration this morning regarding this question is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. We'll start in verse 1. And if you're familiar with this text, there's sexual immorality within the church body. And it's defiling the church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and, is, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, are, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival with, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters since you would not need to go out of the world. Then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So the Apostle Paul learns that there's sexual immorality in the church, and the church is allowing it to fester and grow. And the Apostle Paul is absolutely disgusted with this type of behavior in this church. The sexual immorality is a son has a sexual relationship with the stepmother. And the Apostle Paul says that sexual immorality is so wicked and so evil that the pagans recognize that and don't do it. They don't tolerate it. And so Paul instructs them, what? Let's have coffee together. Have a group hug and sing Kumbaya. No, he doesn't say that. Paul instructs the Corinthians church to remove this person from amongst you. Because what happens is cancer likes to grow. Sin likes to grow, just like cancer. And if you want a holy church, a church that is pleasing to God, then you remove this sin 
from the church. And the Apostle Paul makes a judgment even though he's physically not present. He says, even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present with you in spirit. And Paul has pronounced judgment upon this man. And the key is verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. He says, when the Christians come together, assembled physically as a church, in the name of the Lord Jesus, with Paul's spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, then what? Make the decision to excommunicate. Come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and make this decision. He says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, the purpose of excommunication, again, is to reconcile. Is to bring the offender back to Christ. And is there forgiveness? Of course there's forgiveness for this person. But the person has to give up their sin in order to be reconciled. They don't just come back. And nobody sees the sin and they just sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. There has to be genuine repentance. So the question again is, who is the ultimate authority in the church? Keyword, ultimate. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Then the question becomes, who is the final authority in this decision to excommunicate an unrepentant member of the local church? Answer, the local church. The Christians, they're to come together and make this decision. Again, it's not pastors. It's not any other group. It's not a hierarchy. Every local church is independent. They're autonomous. And so when we think about these two texts regarding church discipline and making church decisions in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, there is nowhere in the New Testament that this final decision to excommunicate belongs to another local church. You're not going to find any biblical data. You're not going to find any information that one church is going to make the final decision for another church in this area. Each church is held solely responsible for its own decision and its own members. Do we understand that? That every church is solely responsible for their own discipline. For their own members. One church can't not intervene in another church's affairs. In the local church context. I cannot go to Pastor Brian's church and say, Pastor Brian, brother, I hear about a person that you're about to excommunicate. I've driven eight hours from Vegas up to Minden, Utah. Or California. Wherever Minden is, brother. Right? <laughs> Is Pastor Corey? I'm sorry, brother. I said it because he was out of the room. I repent in dust and ashes, brother. But I can't go up to my brother and say, Brother, I'd like to vote. I'd like to give you my two cents about what you should do as a pastor and your pastoral team. I can't do that. God has given that church 
this brother, this pastor, that pastoral team to deal with that situation. Now, if I have a question and I'm unclear and I've talked to my pastoral team here in Vegas and I just need more wisdom because there's safety in a multitude of counselors, I have no problem calling Pastor Brian. Brother, what do you think? I really need your opinion. And he may give me sound, biblical, solid advice. But at the end of the day, the decision doesn't come from him. The decision comes from the church. As pastors, if you notice, when we are about to make a major decision, we say, this is where we think we should go. Here is the recommendation. We need you to pray, and we need you to make a decision on such and such a date. So that gives you time to pray, think through the topic or the issue, and then vote, right? So why can't one church intervene in another church's affairs? As one brother likes to say it, he says it like this, every local church is God's new ecclesia, is God's new congregation of Christians. Each local church is the full manifestation and space and time of the one true heavenly eschatological new covenant church. So, when we think about this, the New Testament teaches that each local church has been given sufficient gifts in its people and leadership to govern its own affairs. Now, I already admitted earlier that there's a possibility where there are gospel-centered churches, real churches that don't have pastors. And in that situation, they're at a great handicap. We pray that God would provide qualified, biblically qualified pastor elders in that situation. But in general, each local church has sufficient gifts in its people and the leadership to govern its own affairs. Every local assembly where believers covenant together, affirm biblically qualified men to preach, practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, exercise biblical church discipline, are local churches who are governing themselves already. They're governing themselves already according to the Word of God. So when we think about the New Testament, we think about the epistles. Most of these epistles are addressed to who? Churches. We're talking about the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians. These letters were written not to councils and not to denominations, but to churches. So we need to keep that in mind. And so when we talk about this, this is, at this point, this is where separation occurs between Baptist churches and other denominations regarding independence and autonomy. Because it is a Baptist foundation, it's a Baptist conviction that believe that each local church is independent and autonomous. Why? Because Christ is the head of the church and there's nobody higher than Christ. There's no hierarchy above Christ. 
Therefore, the local church doesn't report, per se, in any official sense. Now, we can have fellowship with other groups. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to a, a real organized hierarchy, there's nothing higher than the local church. We can fellowship with others, but they don't make decisions for us. Again, Christ is the head of the church. So let me give you an example here just to make this point a little bit more clear. And if you're Presbyterian or you have Presbyterian leanings, please hear my heart on this. I am, I'm not on a war path against the Presbyterians. I just want to make a simple contrast and comparison as it relates to this question of church government. Our Presbyterian friends, they object to the local church autonomy and independence. And the main text that they use for their argument is Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize this, and, and you please read it uh, when you have a chance later today. But this text allows them to have a hierarchy above the local church. Now, if you remember the issue, which Pastor Brian talked about in the last two days, is that there were Jewish Christians who were fearful of lo losing their Jewish tradition. They came to the conclusion that if Gentiles are converted and they really want to be Christians, as Pastor Brian likes to say, they got to be a Jew first before they can be a Christian. In other words, they need to identify as a Jew through what? Circumcision, which applies to males, obviously. They need to identify through circumcision, and then they would be Christians. Right? But Paul realizes that if you force the Gentiles to do circumcision, then it's going to give the impression that in order to be a real Christian, you have to perform a religious ritual or work or deed called circumcision. And if you accept that, that is a detriment and a threat to the gospel of grace. Because now salvation, according to that position, is earned or merited through works. That's a threat to the gospel. And to help resolve this issue, there's a special meeting in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, where the church leaders, Paul, Barnabas, the elders, and a few others met. And from Acts chapter 15, the Presbyterians make two points, which I want to delineate right now. The first point is this. The gathering in Jerusalem exercised authority over many churches, many different local churches. To that point, we agree. Because the decision that that meeting came to affected other local churches in that area at that time. So we don't have a problem with point number one. It's point number two is the point of contention, which is this. The gathering in the Jerusalem church was a meeting of a church council or synod constituted by elders representing many 
many different local churches. So the language of that this meeting was a Jerusalem council or synod because why? Many churches, many local churches were represented in this meeting. And so this is the point that we would disagree with as Baptists. It is true that elders were present from other churches. And they were involved in the final decision. But it's not true, and it's hard to prove that this gathering was comprised of many, many churches. It's hard to prove that. I would argue it's better to say that the Jerusalem church, because it was the first Christian church in history, had a special place in redemptive history like no other church at the time. And so, what does this mean? This means that it was a meeting that is a description of what happened at that time. And so, as Baptists, when we look at Acts chapter 15, we look at it as a Jerusalem church meeting, not a Jerusalem council meeting or a Jerusalem synod meeting. We look at it as a Jerusalem church meeting. So we have covered the autonomy and independence of the local church. Now I want to spend some time addressing the final decisions of the local church, the final decisions of the local church. So when we think about biblical church government, a.k.a. polity, we're not talking about a democracy, per se, in the classical sense. We're not talking about a direct democracy in which every decision concerning every issue must be put to a congregational vote. We're not talking about that. If this church decides that you guys want blue chairs and green carpet, I don't want to be part of that decision. I got bigger fish to fry so to speak. So we're not talking about putting every decision before the local church and every issue. Also, we're not talking about displacing any role of God-ordained pastors and elders. There's, in God's wisdom, there is a need for God-ordained pastors and elders. So we're not replacing them or displacing the need for pastors. And this is not a radical form of individualism which every man, woman, and child does what is right in their own eyes. We're not talking about that either. What we are talking about is a healthy, God-honoring version of what is known as congregationalism. Congregationalism as a form of church government. Church, congregationalism has three moving parts, which I've already addressed, but I just want to make it clear. When it comes to congregationalism, one, Christ, Jesus, is the head of the church, which we've already talked about. Number two, that this church, local church, is led by divinely given, biblically qualified pastors. I want to stress biblically qualified. 
And number three, the final court of appeals in matters related to the local church is the congregation itself, is the local church. So number three can be stated as this, as such. Elder-led, congregational affirm. Elder-led, the elders or pastors lead the church according to the word of God. They make recommendations to the church, but the church affirms through a vote. That's called elder-led, congregational affirm as opposed to a different model, which is elder-led, pastor-led, and elder-rule. Elder-rule. So what that means, in that type of government structure, the pastors always lead, which is good, right, and proper, and they always rule, meaning they make the final decision, not the local church. They make the, so, in other words, the church is not involved in any talks, any conversations. The elders or pastors lead and they rule. They make the final decision. Whereas elder-led congregational affirm is we lead and the church talks, prays, and makes the final decision. So, the church I'm arguing for is the final court of appeal. There is a difference between the New Testament church and Old Covenant Israel in both structure and nature. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this uh, because Pastor Brian is going to talk about the New Covenant. And I just want to encourage you that if you're going to take notes on anything throughout this weekend, you definitely want to take notes at the 11 o'clock hour about the New Covenant. Because if we understand the New Covenant, it has great influence over how we govern ourselves. There's a deep connection. So as it relates to the structure, again, I don't want to talk too much about this, uh, but I simply want to say this, that in the New Covenant, all born-again Christians are empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit. All Christians are empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit. So it's important we understand what's about to be preached in the 11 o'clock hour because it does influence the church government. Therefore, the entire local church should be involved in congregationalism or be involved in governing the church. This does not mean in any way that we should replace pastors. Pastors do not function, though, in an Old Covenant sense. That in the Old Testament, there was the, the prophet would act as a mediator between God and the people. But if we're a New Testament church, we need to understand there, there's a difference now. There's a difference. Rather, pastors are fellow believers, fellow members of the local church, and we work in concert with the local church to make a final decision. Again, that is the final appeal is through 
the congregation. If we do anything otherwise, I'm convinced that we do harm to the new covenant. Because we return to a church, or we return the church to an old covenantal system. Now, nature. Nature. The church is a new covenant community. And I just want to make this brief. It is a regenerate, believing community. It's a regenerate, believing community. It's not two communities in one. It's one. So, there's so much I want to say about that, but I really don't want to do so right now. But what does this have to do with congregationalism? Let me simply say it like this. If we understand the new covenant, what this means is that each member of the local church has a role to play. Each and every one of you, if you are born again and you're a member of this local church, you have a role to play, which means that the entire church is ultimately responsible for major decisions. Because why? The local church is the final court of appeals. The final court of appeals. So, in my ministry, early ministry, early pastoral ministry, I'll be very open with you. I had a, a different view of church government. I was actually more Presbyterian-based, where elder-led, elder-rule. And the reason I was thinking like that is because I could do so much more pastoral ministry if other people would just move out of the way. <laughs> if we never have to go to a church vote and spend time discussing the matter. In other words, if you trust the pastors to be in this office, then you should trust the pastors to make every final decision. So my position at the time wasn't biblical. It was more emotional-based. It was a matter of effectiveness and efficiency. I got a limited amount of time. I've got to do this amount of work. Get out of the way. Let me get to work. And then the senior pastor at the time, affectionately Pastor John, Dr. Pratlove, he challenged me in a kind and loving way. If you know anything about Pastor John, he has a way with this, you know, just sultry, smooth British accent. He has a way of just making you feel stupid without saying the word stupid. And so he said to me, Pastor Rollo, can you please tell me, can you please tell me where in the Bible where you support your position for that? And I'm going through my biblical Rolodex in my mind. I was like, I got this, brother, right? I got him. And I, um, I came to the conclusion, like, I, I, can, I can twist the scriptures to make my point, but would that be honoring to the Lord? No. And I just said to Pastor John, I'm, I repent in dust and ashes. I, I can't find a scripture to help me with this. And so I was focused really on efficiency, effectiveness. It was really an emotional argument. Eventually I came around to congregationalism, a healthy version of congregationalism. I'm using technology to keep me on track here. The local church was once described as a colony of heaven. 
And to be a member of heaven automatically means you're a member of a local church. And we need to keep that in mind. Because if we understand that Christ Jesus is the head of the church and that the Lord provides divinely called, biblically qualified men to lead the church, and that the church has the final responsibility to make final decisions within the local church, then we have a church government that is elder-led, congregational affirm, which I believe fits very well with new, the new covenant. I'm not saying that congregationalism is perfect. Why? Because you and I are human. Yes, we're image bearers. We're to bear the image of our holy, great God in this world. We are sinners saved by God's grace. Praise God. But don't we make bad decisions at times? Yes. I am not arguing that congregationalism is perfect. Why? Because humans are not perfect. But I am saying that congregationalism fits very well with the new covenant. So, if we have this church government that places the authority and decision in the proper place, which is the local church, then we have a form of government that is independent of the hierarchy, that makes final decisions on its own at the local church level. And I believe it honors the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for this this time that you've given to us. I pray, Lord, that if we have not been accustomed to this type of biblical teaching, Lord, that you would help us. Thank you for being patient with us and loving and gracious to us. Help us to be biblical in our thinking and in our actions, O God, that we would not treat the church as something secondary, for you are the head of the church and you bled and died for the church. So, Lord, we pray, O God, that you would help us to honor you that we would submit to your word, we would obey your word, and that we would bring glory to your great, precious name. Lord, forgive us, O God, where we have failed you and sinned against you. When we thought that being a member of the local church really has no value or worth, we just kind of meander and do our own thing and not get highly involved. But Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth of your word, that you would fill us with your spirit more and more, and that we would honor you in all that we think, say, and do. Thank you for being gracious, loving, and forgiving towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O God, to reform the church according to your word for the glory of your name and all of God's people said, amen.